morning at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read to us verse 32 through 42. I think it should be printed on the screen behind me. Just in case you've forgotten, I'm going to be reading to you a portion of a letter from home. This is from God. It's to you. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's a pretty sobering text, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, would you help me to speak your words with your heart. And Lord, I ask in particular that your life and your power would constantly and continually change me, change us. And that your life and your power would not only continually change us, but would they continue to be our motivation for life? Help us, Lord. Help us to understand these words. Change us. Motivate us. Start with me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This text is definitely a heavy one. And I want you to know from the outset that if you're here this morning listening to this, that this text is for those of you that might be really self-confident when you came into this room today. This text is for those who are really overwhelmed with the circumstances of your life. This, this text is for those who are just flat out overwhelmed with life in general, and you've been there in an overwhelmed state for a while. This text is for those who are wondering, how in the world can I love people that are not very easy to love? This text is for those who, at rock bottom, 
What you really want is that you just want to understand love and you just want to be loved. This text is for those who are burned, who are disinterested. This text is for those who are facing a new phase of life and all of the anxiety that that may bring. This text is for you. This text is for me. And what I want to show you from this text, what I want you to see here in these verses that I read, is I want you to see an agonizing Savior is confronted with the cost of love. What I want you to take out of this room today and and into your homes, into your families, into your jobs, and how you live all of that out after first taking it into your own heart. So I want you to see an agonizing Savior who's confronted with the cost of love. Not long after Jesus enjoyed a meal with his disciples, that happened just a few verses before this, we looked at that last week. Not long after that meal, and what a special meal that it was. Not long after that meal, Jesus leads his disciples out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. He leads them right to the base of the mountain where we have this garden called Gethsemane. It's perhaps half a mile to a mile away from the room where Jesus celebrated the meal with his disciples. And Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's there that he tells the disciples, the majority of them, if you caught it from the text, stay here. Did you catch that? Verse 32, sit here while I pray. He told the majority of disciples, as soon as he entered the garden, stay here. And then he took Peter, James, and John, and he went into the garden a little bit further. Did you catch that? And then after going in a little bit further, he told them, stay right here. And then Jesus went into the garden alone, a little bit further, by himself. Yes, Jesus wanted his disciples to come with him. He wanted them to support him. It's true, Jesus Christ himself needs support. He needed support. He was sharing his burdens with his friends. He was sharing his burdens with his closest companions. They were with him. And then Jesus goes into the garden a little bit further alone. And this is what happens when Jesus went into the garden alone. He prays to God three times. The text tells you that. He opens up his mouth and prays to his father and talks to his father three times. And in between each of those three times, he prayed once, and then he would go back and check on his disciples. And you know what he would find? The same thing every time. What were they doing? They were asleep. Jesus talks to his father, he comes out, and his disciples are sleeping. He goes back in, he calls out to his father, and he comes back out, and they're sleeping. He calls to his father, and he checks on them, and they're sleeping. And Jesus said to them, why are you sleeping? You need to watch, and you need to pray. Now let's just get, thing, let's just get something on the table from the beginning. It is not legalistic. For Jesus to tell us that we need to pray. 
It is not legalistic for Jesus to look at us and say, you need to grow in your prayer life. It kind of hits home kind of quick, right? Because I doubt any one of us would say, my prayer life is phenomenal. <laughs> any of you there? If, if you would say that your prayer life is phenomenal, please come and see me afterwards because I need help in my own prayer life. Jesus says you need to pray. You need to be disciplined about your prayer. We need to commit our lives to God. If you're here and you wonder, well, I don't know how to pray. It's easy to pray. Don't take that as a slam. That's not a backhanded compliment to say it's easy. The truth about prayer is that it's you opening your mouth and speaking to God. The truth is, is that every day of our lives, we need to talk about our lives to God. How many decisions were made this past week without prayer? Now, sure, living in the South, living here in Greenville, North Carolina, my guess is that many of you prayed over most of your meals. My even further guess and even further assumption is you did that just out of custom, not necessarily because it came from your heart all the time for every prayer. It's just what you're supposed to do. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about just do the routine thing that culturally this is what you do, so you just do it because in doing this, this is what it means to be a Christian. No, Jesus is saying you must share your life with God. And that means that you need to tell him even when you don't know what to say. You need to tell him you don't know what to say. It means in whatever situation you find yourself in, that we need to be giving these situations to God and expressing, however difficult it may be, to express what is on our hearts and in our minds to God. And there's nothing wrong with Jesus telling us that we need to grow in our prayer lives. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with him telling us that we need to be disciplined in prayer. He's saying, this is how you are going to make it. If you try to live without God, if you try to live without telling him what's going on, if you try to do anything without prayer, it just isn't going to work. Not long term. And for those of you that have prayed, you know what it's like to be in a situation where you don't know what to do. And you know what it's like to be in a situation in which you need help. And you know what it's like to express that help to God however poorly you think you expressed it. And to know that from the moment you said that prayer, it doesn't happen all the time, but certainly you've experienced this, that at that moment, there's a sense of peace. There's a sense of relief even though we oftentimes think that we don't pray very well. And in a sense, all we need to do is cry out to God. Jesus says, be on your guard. He says in verse 38, fight temptation by praying. Anyone been tempted here this week? Anyone expect to be tempted this week? Jesus says, pray. Pray. Open your mouth and talk to God. Yes, he knows what's going on in your heart. That's true. 
but prayer is actually bringing that to the surface and saying it. Jesus says, pray. Now let's also, at the same time that we're affirming that Jesus is telling us that we need to pray, let's at the same time, let's make sure we have a real clear picture of what's going on in the disciples' lives. Otherwise, we might misinterpret what's going on here. You see, think about what's been happening in the disciples' lives. Not quite a week ago, Jesus enters Jerusalem and he comes into the temple. And you remember what he does? He's not real happy. He overturns some tables. He says, this temple here is going to be destroyed. And it's obsolete. Well, that didn't go over so well. Not long after that, Jesus was with his disciples, and there was a woman that came in, and she poured out her entire inheritance. Remember the story? She took this pound of nard and poured it all over Jesus. Her entire inheritance was poured out on Jesus, and all the disciples thought that was an unwise decision. And Jesus thought it was great. Not long after that, Jesus told his disciples, you know what? It's really better that I go. It's really better that I go. Because when I go, the Holy Spirit is going to come. The disciples didn't think that way either. They didn't think it was better that Jesus would go. They wanted to be with him for all the reasons that you can imagine that are good reasons and legitimate reasons. And Jesus said that he, that he needed to go and that he thought that was actually better. There again, the disciples are on a different page than Jesus. What about the fact that Jesus had just told them, one of you is going to betray me, another one's going to deny me, and all of you are going to be scattered? How comforting does that sound if you're a disciple? I mean, you can go back and read the text, and all of them are like, no, I won't. I'm not going to go anywhere, Jesus. I'm not going to scatter. I'm going to be right here. I'm not going anywhere. How would that make you feel as a disciple? Here again, they find themselves on a different page than Jesus. They even in this text, in verse 34, heard the words from his mouth. Jesus opened up his mouth and said to them, I am overwhelmed unto death. You see, when you think about Jesus telling them to pray, and when you think about what they've been experiencing, they must have been horribly confused, right? Their life experience had communicated almost nothing except confusion. They're, without question, they were an emotional wreck. They were probably scared Jesus was going to ask them if it was raining. And they were going to answer correctly, and he was going to say, no, it's not. They probably had no idea what was next. And they were confused, they were overwhelmed, they were exhausted. And, and trust me, I'm not trying to excuse their lack of prayer. I'm not trying to excuse our lack of prayer. All I'm trying to say is that when you think about this, we just have to have a clearer picture of what's going on. Jesus wants us to pray. It's not the disciples, it's not that we hate prayer. It's that oftentimes we don't think to pray when we get so overwhelmed. 
And sometimes for us, that's the only time we pray. And it's not that it really comes from our heart. It's just that sometimes we get so desperate because we've tried everything else. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But the point is the disciples were confused and overwhelmed just like we are. It's not that they hated prayer. They just need to get a clearer picture that they needed to continually talk with God and that they needed to go on living their lives talking to him. That's why when you look at the end of verse 38, it's almost like Jesus is finding something positive to say to them, isn't it? Look at what he says at the end of verse 38. Yeah, the spirit is willing. Disciples, your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Isn't that an encouraging thing to hear? Jesus says that he wants you to watch, he wants you to pray, he wants you to fight temptation, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. He looks at your life and he can see the totality of all the experiences that you're having. And he knows exactly where you are, and he says to you right in the middle of that, oh yeah, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Jesus says to them, and it's not wrong, pray. The same thing he says to us. But the reality is, is that in this passage, there's something different here about Jesus, isn't there? There's something a little bit unique. Something here in these verses presents Jesus to us in a little bit different way. We actually get to see in this text, we get to see and hear and know what Jesus was feeling. Now, we get glimpses of that periodically, but this is a concentrated dose. We get to know what Jesus was feeling. You see, up to this point, if you were to go back and read the Gospel of Mark, up to this point, what you would find is that Jesus, for the most part, is calm. Jesus is collected. Jesus is controlled. Jesus is composed. Jesus is stable. But here in the garden, we find something else. Here, he began. Did you notice that? He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. His soul was so full of sorrow that he even wanted to die. His soul was heavy. He was exceedingly sorrowful. He was overwhelmed. And it was intensified with this description, even unto death. One person said it this way. He was plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. I feel bad enough right now to die, Jesus is saying. Have you ever known that in your own experience? You ever been in whatever part of your life living in a moment in which the weight of life, the weight of responsibility was just crushing? where you feel like you just wanted to die? It was just paralyzing? I've had several moments like this in my life. And without going into all kinds of details, one of those moments was shortly after my dad's heart transplant. We didn't know what was going on. The doctors weren't communicating with us very well. And that, is, that was hard. My dad had just had, from my vantage point, 
the, the most massive medical procedure that in my mind I could ever imagine. And the doctors weren't saying very much. And after a couple days of that, not knowing much, and only, be able to, only, only being able to go in and see my dad for very short increments of time, and having to suit up and look at him hooked up to about 70 different machines, the doctors came out and reported. And they said that my dad was in septic shock, and they didn't think that he was going to make it. It's not even that they thought that they could control it. They literally said to us, I don't think he's going to make it. And then 15 minutes later, I got a phone call from my wife. And we were losing a child. Now in that moment, in that moment of not knowing if I was going to lose my dad and not knowing what to do with that, my wife is 900 miles away. What do I do? Just about all I remember is hitting the floor right by the elevator and just crashing down. No, I'm not saying that to you. I'm not showing you that part of my life so you can think, oh my goodness, that is terrible. Because I am positive that you all have had experiences that are at least equally crushing to mine. But the point is, is that Jesus has had them too. The point is that Jesus was here in the garden, and he was exceedingly sorrowful. And if you follow verse 34, what you find is that after he leaves Peter, James, and John, he goes a little bit further, and he's stumbling and staggering, and he falls down. He was overwhelmed with the enormity of what was going on. Luke even tells you that he began to sweat like drops of blood. This was immeasurably intense. It far surpassed my experience, the one that I told you about. Here we have Jesus in a way that we haven't seen him until now. Why did Jesus have this experience? Well, the text gives us a pretty clear clue. We learn that Jesus had this experience, which is kind of shocking, isn't it? I mean, here he is. He's going to pray, right? Why is Jesus so overwhelmed? He's going to talk with his father. Well, we get a little bit of the answer because we can find out what he says to the father. We get a little glimpse of why he was so overwhelmed when we think about what he prayed. He prayed that the cup might pass from him, right? You see, the cup in Old Testament language, in Old Testament symbolism, is a picture of God's wrath. The cup is an ancient symbol for the wrath of God on sin. Yes, your sin. Yes, my sin. It's a picture of God's displeasure, his anger with sin, that he is against it, and that God is absolutely against sin. Absolutely. As one man has said, you can think of sin in this way. Sin is telling God, get out of my life. We've learned this past summer together in Sunday school hour, we were learning that, I think Todd mentioned it this way, that, that sin is the propensity for us to mess everything and anything up. 
Sin is saying, God, I don't want your thoughts. I don't want your plan for my life. I don't want your power. I want to do this on my own. And sin is in all of us. It's why we mess everything up. It's why we'll mess anything up. And God is displeased with sin. He's against it. You see, in saying and in hearing that God is against sin, that he doesn't like it, that he's repulsed by it, understand that God's anger with sin is not the opposite of love. God is angry with sin because of his love. You see, when you see someone that you love destroying themselves by their decisions, by their priorities, by not having their priorities lined up, when you see someone that you love destroying themselves because of their sin, that doesn't, that doesn't make you want to walk away. It makes your heart go out to them. You get frustrated that because you care, because you love. God's displeasure with sin is because he loves, he loves us. And the more loving he is, the more upset he is with evil. And the more upset he is with sin. And the more loving you are, the more you are upset by sin. And the more upset you are at evil. And that doesn't mean that you try to control everything. It just means that you understand your love is challenged when someone that you care about is wrecking their lives. You see, that's how God views us and our sin. You see, the, the ultimate result of hatred is indifference. The, the end of hatred is not caring And we live in a culture and we live in a world in which love is often presented as letting anyone do whatever they want for any reason. And I want to tell you, from the Christian worldview, that's not love at all. That's hate. Hate is not caring. Hate is letting someone do whatever they want for whatever reason. And God says, no, this is love. Love is real, and love cares, and love aches for those who are destroying themselves. And that's what we've done with sin. That's what we've done because of the sin that is at work in our lives. You see, Jesus is staggering. Jesus is overwhelmed. Jesus is horrified. Jesus is terrified because he has to drink the cup. He has to take in the consequences of sin. Even though Jesus has never sinned, he is becoming, he is being made like sin. He is here having to take the cup down. He is having to drink in the wrath of God. He's having to endure and will endure all 
that the wrath of God can pour out. You see, Jesus in the garden comes face to face with the undiluted, holy, unflinching will of God. Jesus is coming face to face with the law of God. And in particular, the curse. He is coming face to face to understand not only the demands that God has, but how we all have not followed those demands and we have not met God's expectations. And that brings horrific consequences. And Jesus is looking at that cup and he is coming face to face with the truth that God's will does not budge. What he says is true and what he says is right is absolute. And when he says these are the consequences and this is what happens, it will And the only way to deal with that is to endure the wrath of God and the consequences of sin. And besides all that, it's not just looking face to face at the unflinching will of God. It's not just understanding something of the truth that Jesus must take it down in himself. It's that he has the responsibility to see it through. It's not just a theoretical thing that God's upset with sin. It's that Jesus has the responsibility to go all the way to endure everything. Not just know he has to endure it, but he has to endure it practically, physically, truthfully. And he's come face to face with that. You can understand why Jesus would say, God, is there, is there any other way? Is there any other way? Can't, can't this cup pass from me? Can't it, can it go to someone else? And, and isn't this staggering to think about that Jesus had every right and every reason in the universe to look at you and to look at me and say, this is your cup. You drink it. But he didn't, did he? He didn't look at his disciples and say, y'all think praying's hard. How about you take this cup, did he? He even mildly encouraged them as well as challenging them. But even when they were sleeping and not helping and not supporting, Jesus was committing. He was committing himself to take down the wrath of God. He was committing to endure hell. You see, before Jesus dies, he opens up his heart to God. He opens up his heart to his disciples. He's opening up his heart to you and he's opening up his heart to me. And he's showing us his fear. He's showing us his struggle. And all of Jesus' life, at every moment up until now, whenever he prayed to God, as one man said, whenever he prayed to God, he got heaven. But here in the garden, he got judgment. He got darkness. And he began to smell hell. 
and without question. Jesus was praying to his Father and getting the stench of hell and experiencing the beginning of darkness, which will come to a climax on the cross, and experiencing judgment, which will come to its consummation on the cross. He's experiencing all of that so that when you pray and when I pray, guess what we get? Heaven. He was experiencing all of that so that you and I will only get these three answers. Yes, no, or wait. You will never get hell. You will never get darkness, and you will never get judgment because of Jesus in the garden being willing to endure what wrath would be poured out on him and committing himself to it. Isn't that astonishing? Do you understand now why God would say, you need to pray. You need to tell me what's going on. You need to fumble around with your words and you need to say the same things and not know how to say this. And you, you need to open up your mouth and you need to talk to me. Because Jesus has done everything so that you won't get darkness and judgment and hell. You'll get heaven and a warm embrace and understanding and patience and power to endure the yes, the no, or the wait. And beloved, without a doubt, there was a devilish whisper in Jesus' ear. Without question, the devil was there observing this whole thing. And he was pressing on Jesus. Is this worth it, Jesus? Is this worth it? Are they worth it? The ones that you want to support you, are, are they worth it? Are you worth it? And Jesus responds and he says, not my will, but the Father's be done. And then he says, Did you, don't you love this at the end of the, the text? It's like this gigantic crescendo. It just bursts forth at the end of this text where Jesus says, rise up. Let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. Are they worth it? Oh yeah. Let's go. I've got an appointment to keep. And I've got salvation to bring. And it's because I love my people that I will do what they never could do. And I will open up heaven for them so that not only will they be there one day, but they will cry out to my Father and they will always get a warm embrace and they will always get heaven and they will always get his love and they will never get his abandonment and they will never get his wrath and they will never get a no. Sorry, they'll never get hell. Sometimes we get no, don't we? But we never get hell. Are they worth it? Jesus says, you better believe it. Let's go. I've got an appointment to keep. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have given us these texts, that you've given us these stories that you show us the heart of our Savior. That you remind us that in this moment, as Jesus was getting ever closer to the cross, 
that he was opening up his heart for everyone to see. He was opening up his heart so that we could see the struggle, the fear, the horror. We could see him stumbling and falling because he was confronted with the cost of love. And we thank you, God, that he was willing. He was willing to pay and endure all the requirements of love. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you too were vulnerable. And we ask that you would help us to be vulnerable with you. What that may mean is that for the first time we acknowledge that we need you and we need to receive the forgiveness that you have purchased. And for others of us, we need to receive the forgiveness that you have purchased over and over and over again. Because when we receive that forgiveness and when we receive the righteousness that you have purchased for us and lived for us, that means that our lives are spent praying and resisting temptation and fighting sin and loving deeply. So God, would you change us and motivate us to pray, motivate us to love, motivate us to be disgusted with our own sin and disgusted with the evil that we see all around us? Pull us away from our self-dependence and pull us away from our self-reliance. Cause us to be found in Christ and to be thankful that because he got hell, we will get heaven and hope and love and power to obey. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son, and thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen.